That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. friends, what's up? Another new Evangelicals podcast is here. I have a very special guest on this one. I had the chance to interview Paula Stone Williams, who just wrote a book, As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and Patriarchy After I Transitioned. Paula Stone Williams is an internationally known speaker on issues of gender equity, LGBTQ advocacy, and religious tolerance. Uh, tolerance. <laughs> it's been a long day, friends. She has been featured in TED Women, TED Summit, The New York Times, Red, Red Table Talk, TEDx Mile High, The Washington Post, NPR, Good Morning America, CNN, ABC News, and scores of other media outlets. Ooh, okay finished. So I brought her on so we could talk about her journey, about her being a pastor, about her fight for women's rights, um, about her time as a CEO in a very large um, church planting network and all other kinds of things. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It is certainly one that makes you sit and have to think a lot, especially after the interview was done. So thank you, Paula, for coming on. I really appreciate it. That being said, friends, um, I just want to say thank you as I do. I know it's the same kind of flow. Okay. Every single intro, I get that, but I honestly mean it every single time. I am so grateful for everyone who is sharing and listening to this podcast. We continue to grow, which means a lot because one of our goals at New Evangelicals is to be um, a safe place where people can come and realize that they're not alone in their faith walk, right? I think a lot of people feel um, that maybe they're isolated or that no one else thinks this way, this way about their Christian faith or about Jesus. And, and these kinds of podcasts, and I'm just one of many, um, hopefully become safe havens for people to realize that, hey, I'm actually not alone. So thank you to everyone who is doing that work. It is super important. Also want to say thank you to all of our supporters out there. We are currently in the middle of a big fundraising project uh, called Finding Our Voices. We are trying to raise monthly funding that will allow us to produce a docu-series where we actually film on location and elevate the stories of those in our community that have been hurt by church and have experienced abuse. And our goal is to tell those stories so people hear them and that the church hopefully starts to listen that the institutions that we are a part of are actually hurting people. So if you can go to the link that's in our show notes or in the in the comments section on YouTube and check it out, that'd be so great. We are we are getting there, my friends. We are about 35% funded out of our base goal. Um, and our next step is to raise enough money so I can start doing this on a full-time basis right now, full transparency, okay? Full transparency. I juggle a lot of things, okay? I have a full-time job. I do this about 30 plus hours a week, plus our family and my, my wife is pregnant. So I believe in this and this is our goal. So anything that you're able to give monthly sincerely goes right to helping us do this um, better and better each time. And also we are in the process of forming the New Evangelicals as a nonprofit, which is so exciting. That means that all of your donations will become tax deductible. So our application is in process. We're getting ready to 
submitted hopefully this week. And so that is on the way. And that's all because of the work and of the finances you guys have given. So a sincere thank you to all of our donors. Honestly, it, it, it truly helps directly. There's a direct um, causation um, of, uh, of your giving. So if you're able to give, that'd be great. Um, but if not, it's okay. I get it. I know these are tight times for a lot of us. I totally understand that. And uh, no matter what, it is our goal to always be a paywall-free community, meaning we don't hide anything behind a paywall. Everything we do is free. Our Zoom groups are free. Our sessions are free. Everything we do, no cost. And that is always our goal. So, all right, friends, enough of me rambling. That was a long ramble. Sorry, not sorry, right? <laughs> Here is my interview with Paula Stone-Williams. I hope you enjoy it. Um, well, Paula, I am, like I said before we started recording, I am honored to have you on the New Evangelicals podcast. I think my audience has a lot to learn from you as well as I do. So thanks for making the time late on, on the East Coast for me and for coming on. I appreciate it. Well, it's happy to be with you. <laughs> well, I got to be honest. My, my admin is the one who recommended me to you. Uh, she said, you know, you should check out uh, Paula Williams. I think she has a great story. I think your audience will love her. And I said, let me... Let me check her out. And I did some searching. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I got to see if Paula will be, will be willing to hop on. So, you know, I don't know if my audience is super familiar with you right now. I know that you have, you have a book that, that, that just came out, and I'm not going to ask you to read the whole book to us, but why don't you kind of give us just some of your background, where you've been and where you are now. We can hop into all the good stuff. Yeah, a little bit of, uh, of what's going on recently is I did a TED Talk uh, in uh, – 2017, the fall of 2017, that's had over four and a quarter million views on mm. YouTube, which then caused me to be asked to speak for TED itself with my son in uh, 2018. And then I spoke again for another TEDx event in 2019. And then I was approached by Simon & Schuster about doing a memoir. And uh, so I've had a, a ton of media coverage over the last four years, really all out of that very first TED Talk. Mm. And uh, that first TED Talk, I think its title is, I've lived as a man, I've lived as a woman, and here's what I've learned. Yes. So most of what I speak on is actually not about being transgender. Most of what I speak on is gender equity. But basically, I'm saying there's no way a well-educated white American male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor, mm. because it's all he's ever known and all he ever will know. And I actually speak, uh, well, actually all over the world on that subject corporations universities conferences uh, it's uh, uh, that's yeah and so i don't actually speak all that often on being transgender yeah you know it's interesting you say that because i did watch the the ted talk again earlier today i said this was not what i expected you know i i think i just kind of assumed right which obviously kind of bit yeah. me in the butt but i was like oh this is more about, about like economic justice and uh mm -hmm. you know gender equity and i honestly am very interested in all those topics as well because as i've been kind of thinking more and more and i grew up in a very conservative you know rush limbaugh type home undoing some of that and realizing like actually our our society is not very just when it comes to our work and how we how we you know distribute um finances and stuff so i, I think that, i think that we could definitely hit some of that if you're cool with it during this time because um i'm very sure. curious to hear your thoughts like like you said living as both at one point a man and now a woman i think that is a very unique perspective why don't you kind of give my audience you know um those listening just some of the background of kind of how you got from point a to point b sure I knew from the time I was three or four years of age, I was transgender. And mm -hmm. in my naivete, and I think my white male privilege, 
I thought I got to choose. I somehow had fashioned this notion that I got to choose my gender. Mm. And that sometime before kindergarten, a gender fairy would arrive and say, okay, the time's come. And that never happened. So I started school and a lot of trans women will tell you, and that's what I am, a trans woman, a person who's gone from male to female as a trans woman, female to male as a trans man. Mm. Um, But a lot of trans women um, had an experience where they, they say they felt like a a uh, girl in a boy's body, and they always hated being a boy. I, no, that's not me. I, I never felt like a girl in a boy's body. I always felt like I was supposed to have been born a girl. Huh. And I didn't hate being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one. So once I realized that, you know, I had no real choice, my father was a fundamentalist pastor, my mother was even more conservative, uh, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't terrible. It was a fine childhood. But then I got to puberty, and all of my friends who were girls had bodies changing in the ways. I wanted mine to, and my body was changing in ways I absolutely hated. Mm. And I was attracted to girls and still am. Your gender identity is not your sexual identity. Your sexual okay. identity is who you want to go to bed with. Your gender identity is who you want to go to bed as. Uh, and so I was attracted to girls, but I would also find it difficult because I, I wanted to be the girl to whom I was attracted. Mm. So I got a primo job as a disc jockey at a large radio station in Kentucky as a 16-year-old, because doesn't everybody get that kind of a job? <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I got a scholarship offer to the University of Kentucky, and I actually did not take it. I instead took a scholarship to a Christian university because I was terrified because I knew I was transgender. And there wasn't even a name for it at that point. I rushed home from high school in my senior year to see Merv Griffin interview Christine Jorgensen, the first well-known trans person from the 1950s. Nobody knew anything. There were no books in the library, nothing. Mm. And so I was terrified of being that way. And I thought, well, if I go to a Christian college, uh, you know, somehow that'll fix it. Ah. And, you know, just in case anybody out there is thinking it might, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't fix it. Mm. So at college, I began dating a girl who I wanted to date and did not want to be. And it's like, oh, this is much nicer. And I ended up marrying her. And because of being a child growing up in that pure movement, and yeah. Linda K. Klein is a good friend of mine. Her book has been amazing. Um but I, I thought that um, sex would cure me. I thought mm. that having intercourse with my partner on our wedding night would cure me. And it did not. And so um, I woke up the next morning, uh, literally saying, oh, I, I, I'm in trouble mm. because I thought this would be okay now. And so I had not told her before we married. I told her uh, not long after that. And I told her what I understood at the time, which was not much. And so we thought, well, we can work through this together. Yeah. And then when we had kids, I really loved being a dad. I still do. Mm. And so it went on a back burner, but then the kids left home. And with gender dysphoria, which is what it's called in the DSM-5, yeah. um, which is a consistent, persistent sense that you're that you are not inhabiting a body that is consistent with the gender you see yourself as. Um, when the kids left home and started getting worse and worse and worse, and finally got to the point that um, mm. uh, it was a, a huge problem in my life. And then yeah. I I was called to transition, which is an interesting thing for an evangelical. Yeah. I mean, I've always been evangelical. I led one of the largest church planting organizations in the nation. At some point or another, I've preached in, I think, three of the 10 largest churches in the U.S., 
or at least the 10 largest five or six years ago. I don't know about now. Sure. Um, but I, I never really had felt a strong sense of call. And I was watching my favorite television show of all time, Lost. Oh, great show. And, uh, uh, yeah. And in the final year, I was, uh, yeah. Were you a Lost fan? I was a huge Lost fan until okay. the final season. Then they lost me. No oh, no. See, I love, I think the final season was brilliant. <laughs> I think Carlton Cuse, you know, Cuse is a good Catholic. Mm. And so what, it, it took me a while after seeing the final show to realize everything taking place in LA was purgatory. Yeah. Everything take, taking place on the island was real. And they just had to work through a bunch of stuff before they could go to heaven together. Once I realized that, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. But there's a point in the final season, as a Lost fan, sure. it's the first time Jack goes to the lighthouse, sees in the broken mirror his home, hmm. and he realizes he's been called by Jacob, the God figure, to yeah. die. Yeah. And of course, he's the Christ figure. And I... I started sobbing and I sobbed until two in the morning, fell asleep on the couch, woke up at about five and just sobbed till maybe noon hmm. because I knew I had been called. And I was like, God, who the blank do you think you are to call me to this? I'm going to lose everything. Yeah. And I was called and I ignored that call for uh, two years because that's what you do when you're called under the hero's journey, because the hero's journey is always under the road of trials and no one willingly goes onto the road of trials. Mm. So you reject the call of God. And then and then finally, you're miserable because you know you've been called. And then a spiritual guide, a Yoda, comes into your life. And, and you accept the call under the road of trials. I mean, this is the hero's journey in every culture, every age, every language, every ethnicity, every people group. Right. And you get into the road of trials. And sure enough, it's a road of trials. And then it gets worse. You get lost in this deep, dark cave. And that's where you find out that it's all right, because lost is a place too. Mm. And that for me was um, uh, rejecting the call was that two years. And then I transitioned and lost all my jobs within seven days. Yeah. You cannot be fired for being transgender in all 50 states of the U.S. unless you work for a religious corporation. Yes. Yeah. So I lost all my jobs within seven days. It never had a bad review. Uh, had had uh, only had success in my life, and that was that deep dark cave where, where you know Dante's language at the beginning of the Divine Comedy. In the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Yeah, that was that, and I still had not transitioned. I only came out as trans, hmm. and about uh, six months later, I finally transitioned, and of course, the evangelical world instantly. Uh, got rid of me. I lost yeah. my pension, uh, wow. which was conservatively worth three quarters of a million. I uh, I had to actually threaten a lawsuit to get money of mine back that the organization was holding. Uh, it was a really horrible, horrible experience, and uh, and I I made less money in the next four years as Paula than I made in in the last two months as Paul. Wow. So it was a pretty horrible time. And then, then I ran across to post-evangelical church in Denver, Denver Community Church. At the time, it was about eight years old, running about 800. And within a couple of months, I was on their preaching team. Mm. And then I started working with Denver Community Church, which is a church of a couple thousand that became fully open and affirming a couple of years ago. I, well, more than that now, about four years ago. And I began working a lot with them. And, um, and that's what took me then on the, the TED route. Uh, someone heard uh, an interview we had done with Colorado Public Radio and invited me to speak for TEDx Mile High in Denver, which is one of the largest TEDx's in the world. And, mm. 
and the rest, as they say, is history. So those those two churches, plus my son's church in Brooklyn, uh, combined to uh, to plant the church I pastor now, Left Hand Church. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because we used to start churches back in the day at the Orchard Group with eight hundred thousand to one point two million dollars, <laughs> yeah, and you know a huge staff. And we started this church with uh, with eighty thousand, and we have. Um, uh, four part-time co-pastors, and it's uh, it's been a wonderful experience. Wow, that catches you up. I I honestly I can you know your story. You can say I can well, tell stories <laughs> fast. I I I preached a sermon on the entire history of religion in wow. twenty three minutes just just three weeks ago. My <laughs> goodness, that's imagine give you a round of applause. It's impressive. Um, okay, wow, so many. Th- first off, thank you for sharing. Um, really powerful. So I was taking down notes on my screen over here as you were talking. Um, you know, one of my questions I, I was wondering as you were realizing this part about yourself, right? Did, did, did your faith and like who you were ever feel at odds with each other? Because I have I have people in my community who would tell me like, I, I feel like this is, I'm fighting this. I don't know what to do about this. Did you ever feel like, oh, my faith can't be reconciled? Because I get that a lot no. on my end. You know, it was no, always I never did. for you. Okay. No, even as an evangelical, yeah, I was. Um, I never ever thought of being transgender as being any kind of sin because it's not. I mean, it's not mm. mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I, so even with an evangelical theology, I had no difficulty with it. I just, uh, I just once I knew what it was, yeah, didn't want to to destroy my family, my wife yeah. and my children. Right. Uh, but no, I never had any difficulty with it. And probably personally, I had moved on on the issues of uh, uh, the LGBT, uh, the LGB issue. Mm. Uh, I'd moved on probably by the early eighties on that issue. I was just in a denomination where I couldn't be public about it. So yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I think I wrongly now, but I remember hiring a guy who's still still a friend in, I think it was the late eighties. And he said, you know, I'm gay. And I said, yep. And as long as you're not in a relationship with somebody, we'll never have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. And he came to me at one point and said, I, I think I want to be in a relationship. And I said, well, you know, okay, now you probably need to resign. And I deeply regret that because I think mm-hmm. in not taking a stand, people were dying. There's no more at risk group of people on earth uh, for suicide than LGBTQ children of evangelical parents who are not supportive of them. Uh, wow. They have a suicide rate 13 times higher than their peers. So I think I did a very grave disjustice or injustice to, mm. to all of those people by not earlier stating my position on those issues. I, um, you know, I, I work a lot in the deconstruction field. I'm sure you've heard of that term before, you know, that people who are, you know, rethinking their faith and just kind of, at, at, I call it a crisis of theology is what it is for most people mm-hmm. that I encounter. Um, and one of the one of the reasons that people get so scared about that is because they're in these evangelical spaces, they're fully plugged in, and they just don't want to lose the friends that they made. And they know right. that, that once they, in their own way, come out theologically with certain issues, right? That's on the line. Was that hard for you to know that that you were really risking perhaps very close relationships with people that you no longer have? I think as a powerful white male, I had no idea the price I would pay. Mm. I thought um, all of my friends and in our denomination, which had about 7,000 churches, I was clearly a national leader. And I thought, um, well, all these people have, there are two options. You can either think to yourself, oh my goodness, 
um, Paul is transgender. I, I must not understand what it means to be transgender. Uh, I need mm. to go back and, and study that because I certainly know Paul's character. That was right. option A. Right. Option B was, oh my goodness, I, I Paul wasn't who I thought he was. He didn't have the character I thought he had. He's transgender and he's going to hell. And I had no idea how many people would, thousands, almost all, would choose that option. Mm. And I knew thousands and thousands of people by name in that world. And I've kept in contact, continual contact with, uh, continuing contact all the way through with four. Wow. That had to be, that had to take a, a, a toll. I mean, I, I, I say that only because I've recently been asked to step down from my volunteer drumming position, you know, as a white straight male, because I, I believe, you know, of, for LGBTQ inclusion, and I've lost like 10 friends. And that's been very painful mm-hmm. for me, right? People yeah. that I thought I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be friends with all the way, uh, we would do great things together, are just no longer in my life. Mm-hmm. So I, I can only imagine if we compounded that, um, how that must have felt for you. Well, yeah. And I lost um, no non-evangelical friends, not one. Mm. Uh, I was a pastoral counselor at the time, uh, in addition to the other work I was doing. And I had a number of evangelical clients. I lost none of them. Wow. I was prepared to give all all of them a referral to someone else. And, um, you know, they all knew me deeply enough as their therapist that um, they they were all okay. Wow. It seems like it seems like you wear a lot of hats. So you're a therapist, you're a pastor, you were yeah, my doctorate's in pastoral counseling. Wow. Uh, yeah, I did adoption casework for like 25 years. I I was in television for 18 years. I was in radio for seven. I yeah, I've I'm a Renaissance person, <laughs> adjunct professor at universities in the US and Europe. I I I had a I was wonderful. My first um, seminary experience, I uh uh, my last year of that master's program, I had a professor who took me aside, an adjunct professor who took me inside. You're a Renaissance person. Everybody's going to tell you you can only do one thing. Mm. And uh, and you're not ever going to be that person who can just do one thing. I, right. You need to give yourself permission to do that. He, at the time, was a megachurch lead pastor and a Christian university president. And wow. he actually is one of the four people still in touch with me. Wow. So, you know, I'm Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Curious to kind of get your your temperature check here on why do you think the evangelical movement in general is really so um, I'm not sure what the right language is but just so I mean vehemently opposed uh, to mm-hmm. the transgender community you know in their spaces yeah. to the queer community in their spaces right. I mean it, it, it seems like for me it's way beyond just theology uh, there's something deeper going on but I would like to get maybe your your thoughts on that I actually won't really discuss the theology of it because it's not about theology. And I mm. frankly don't have time for that. I, yeah, yeah. My time's in demand and I'm, I'm going to have productive conversations and those aren't. Right. Uh, oh, I can have them, um, but I'm not interested in having them. Ah. Um, I, I'm a, a fan of uh, the work of uh, Edward O. Wilson, E.O. Wilson, a sociobiologist at Harvard and MIT, who's won a couple of Pulitzer Prizes. 
Uh, one was in identifying that the key social unit for the human species is not the family, which was quite a surprise at the time. It's in fact the tribe. Um, in fact, this is actually good news for religion because uh, all the, the uh, modern atheists will tell you that religion is terrible, awful, horrible. But the truth is we never really took off as a species uh, as long as we were focused on blood kin. We took off as a species when we became a tribal species. And what is it that brought us together as a tribal species? It was not the need for safety. It was man's search for meaning. That's why Victor Frankl's book still sells in the top 10 yep. all the time. Book. You know, think Stonehenge, think of burial mounds of indigenous Americans. You know, it was, yeah. it was trying to fashion meaning out of this consciousness we have that includes death. And so religion actually caused us to propel much more quickly forward. That's when mm. civilizations began to develop. That's when language developed. So, so religion, um, was the reason, uh, or the search for meaning, was actually the reason we became a tribal species. And there are only nine tribal species. Uh, all of them, Wilson calls eusocial species, E-U-S-O-C-I-A-L. Hmm. And he, um, so his first uh, Pulitzer Prize was in identifying that humans were, um, or the, uh, the the, the were primarily a tribal species. And his second yeah. was in identifying these nine new social species. Yeah. And all, all nine have uh, what he would call a tribal gene. Uh, like every other species, they have a selfish gene, but they also have a tribal gene. They, they are willing to, uh, when an enemy comes into the camp, join together, sacrifice themselves, defeat the enemy. Some of them die, but life goes on. Mm. But he says, unfortunately, as we have evolved as a species, Eight of the nine species have evolved exactly as you would expect. That has continued. The species have strengthened. He said, unfortunately, the ninth eusocial species has evolved to believe an enemy is necessary for the tribe to survive. And where no enemy exists, we create one. Mm. He said, if we don't get a hold of that, we lose the species and quite possibly the planet. Mm. And the best short explanation of that, if you just look up E.O. Wilson on Fresh Air, uh, his interview with Terry Gross on that is, it's only an hour long and it's marvelous okay. and is a much better presentation of what I just said. But that is the issue, that we create enemies that don't exist. Yeah. Uh, the place that creates enemies that don't exist and always has is the desert expression uh, or the, the fundamentalist expression of the desert religions. So all three desert religions, all three Abrahamic religions began as religions of scarcity. Mm. There are enough resources to go around, so I've got to take care of me and mine. And in their non-fundamentalist forms, all three, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, have evolved to be very generous religions. Yeah. Unfortunately, in their fundamentalist expressions, they continue to be uh, religions of scarcity. Yeah, There are not enough resources to go around. So if my tribe's going to survive, then we must defeat the enemies. And if there are no obvious enemies, then we'll create enemies that don't exist. Mm. So that is in fact what's happened. I have another opinion that probably a lot of um, your uh, viewers and listeners won't necessarily like. And that is that... Um, 
the patriarchal church, the male-led church, mm. um, has been almost purely, purely patriarchal. And so if you are a man and you run your religious world and you want to choose a social issue to become concerned about, you might subconsciously choose a social issue that personally costs you nothing. So I find it just worth considering that in the evangelical and fundamentalist Christian world, and it crosses over into Roman Catholicism and crosses over into Islam, that um, the two issues they've chosen um, are a woman's choice and LGBTQ issues. Well, none of these leaders are women and 3% or so are LGBTQ. So if you take those up as social positions, uh, that's not gonna cost you anything yeah. um, as it would cost you if you took up uh, socioeconomic injustice or, <laughs> right. or uh, right. systemic racism. Well, now that's going to cost me something. Right. So I think that is in fact what's what's going on. I, I say that in my book. I, my book is as a woman, what I learned about power, sex, and patriarchy after I transitioned. It's uh, published by Simon and Schuster, so you can find it anywhere. But uh, there are um, fifteen chapters on my journey, and then there are two chapters on gender inequity, and then there are two chapters on my religion. Uh, in America behaves in the way in which it does. And then a chapter on sex as a man and sex as a woman and then uh, an ending chapter. But I say all that in, in those two chapters if, if anybody wants to, to take a look at it. Again, yeah, it's well, as a woman. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely put it in the show notes. And like I said, it's on my list to pick up. I have one more book ahead of yours um, and I, I'm, it's on my list. I'm looking forward to it. I want to comment on what you said because I think it's really well stated and it's very accurate because I have you know, been thinking a lot lately of like, yeah, why aren't we talking about like the, the problem of capitalism <laughs> creating like mass poverty, like all over the place? I mean, in America, you know, like, uh, let alone across the world and how it's destroying the planet, how it's destroying women and other people who are not pretty much white males. And you, you know, and I, I I, like you, I grew up steeped in evangelical culture, homeschooled, the whole nine, you know, never heard a sermon in my 32 years of life on this planet from a pulpit of a pastor talking about how we have to think about the wage gap, <laughs> you know, how like what Amazon's right. doing is ruining the middle class. But I've heard a lot of sermons about how they're coming for your kids, you know, the gay agenda's here, um, or, you know, Black Lives Matter is Marxist. Um, and I just keep thinking like, wow, this just, it doesn't make any sense. It can't no, be, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, like you said, um, it can't be a theological conversation we're having. That that, and I I admire you for not going there because you're right. It's really a fool's errand, right? You'll you'll get stuck in the weeds mm -hmm. there forever, arguing over nonsensical things because it's not about that. Like you said, it, there's something deeper driving this. I'm reminded of I just watched Pray Away today on Netflix, uh, mm -hmm. the documentary about you know the right. Exodus International movement, mm -hmm. and they bring up the great point that 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 the anti-gay movement was planned with politics intentionally to keep a certain group of power over other people. So I think your point is just right on the money. You're spot on. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty convinced it's accurate. And so, you know, I just take a look at the, uh, at where we're headed, you know, what the trends are. 83% of uh, Jewish population is supportive of marriage equality. Um, 
71% of Catholics, not the Catholic leadership in the US, the Catholic leadership in the US is a problem. Uh, 63% of mainline Protestants are supportive of marriage equality. Um, 37% of evangelicals, but 51% of millennial evangelicals. It's, it's just a matter of time. And what happened is with a marriage equality, the evangelical world realized they'd lost on that one. Mm-hmm. And evangelicals, if, if nothing, they're not stupid. Right. They also know that they eventually have got to move on this issue because the culture has moved on. Yeah. And to continue to hold this position means they'll lose the next generation. And as one large, respected megachurch pastor told me uh, just a couple of years ago, you know where I am on this, but my money isn't. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, wow. they, they're going to move on on this issue. So, well, what else can maintain my control? Oh, well, how about if we move on to the uh, to the gender dysphoria issue? Let's just move on to the transgender people yes. and then attempt to create a scriptural rationale for that that is just pitifully inadequate. It's like, I mean, really, a Bible college freshman could argue down that argument. Right. So it's just, it's pitiful. But, you know, and of course, the terrible part about that is they're now enacting laws. And everybody says, well, it's the conservative Republicans enacting these laws. And there are over 300 of them pending right now, and over a dozen that have been signed into law. They are all targeting the civil rights of transgender children. And you say, who's driving these laws? And everybody says, well, it's conservative Republicans. It's actually not. Mm. A study was done. uh, It's a Pew Research study. Uh, Well, I believe it's Pew. Um, It's one of the really big ones. Uh, I'm not absolutely positive of that, but uh, easy to find. Um, They studied those who voted for Donald Trump in the 10 swing states in the last election. Yeah, And then ask them a number of additional questions. And one of them was, should transgender people have the same civil rights as anyone else? 61% said yes. So mm-hmm. then who's driving these laws through Republican legislatures? Right. Oh, well, 84% of evangelicals believe gender is immutably determined at birth. And 61% of those people think that our nation is already giving too many civil rights to transgender people, and yet only 25% of them know someone who is out as a transgender person. Mm-hmm. So it's evangelicals driving these laws. Yeah. And quite frankly, they're killing children. I'm just sitting with what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> Let that soak in for a minute. Yeah, because, I, I wish it wasn't true. I, um, I mean, I might. Horrible. I, but it is. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what do we. Okay, I'm in evangelical spaces still, technically. Like, you know, my I counsel new evangelicals, right? We're trying to push the church forward. That, that's like my big thing, full transparency. You know, how do. What do I do? Like, help me out here. You know, like how how do I use my platform, and how do we use this community to start like saving the lives of transgender children? Right, because I I want to be part of that that help. So, what do you think? <laughs> you you know? know, I was I was just I I haven't looked at any any stuff related to this in the last. Uh maybe a year, and I just happened to run across some stuff today on mimetic theory with mm. Rene Girard, uh, who was a philosopher anthropologist. And um, he says, you know, when what happened in, in the development of our species is when people gained power, mm. um, they, they didn't want to give up that power. 
Right. So they had to figure out how to maintain that power. And so they would create enemies within the camp. Mm. And they would say, oh, well, it's time for a change in regimes. Um, oh, well, no, we can't do that because there are enemies in the camp. And I'm the only one who can identify them. Mm. And so mm. um, all of that to say, the point that the article was making is um, we'll do almost anything mm. to hang on to our power. Mm. And frankly, it's not going to happen until people like me do what I was not willing to do. Mm. And, you know, we would have lost probably 80% of our financial support if I had uh, brought our organization out um, probably when I was fully ready to, maybe 1989 or 90. Um, well, we should have done that. We would have been fine. It would have been a different organization. We would have figured out how to plant churches on a shoestring instead, but we would have been fine. But I liked my power and my comfort. Mm. You know, my, my third TED Talk is about men willingly giving up power. Yeah. My first TED Talk said 4.25 million views. The third hasn't quite hit half a million yet because mm. men really don't like watching it. Because I say that really the only way to get gender equity is for you to actually step down and give your position to a woman. Mm. You know, 5.8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. 6.6% of Silicon Valley CEOs are women. 3% of venture capital goes to female founded firms. Women earn 81 cents or 89 cents of the dollar or 81 cents of the dollar for uh, men earn. um, Black women, 64 cents of the dollar. Native American women, 59 cents of the dollar. Hispanic American women, 54 cents of the dollar. We're we're not ever going to get there until guys are willing to say, I will take less to pay you more. And I think there are plenty of young Gen X, millennial, certainly Gen Z, evangelical leaders who know the truth. They just really don't want to pay the price you just paid in having to go off of a board because of the position you've taken publicly. Mm-hmm. By the way, churches that become completely open and affirming, yeah. um, they lose, uh, best as we can tell, about uh, 20% of their people and 20% of their income. It takes uh, about a year to get the 20% of people back, but it takes about three to get the 20% of income back. Hmm. Let's um, let's switch gears to what seems to be like really your passion, you know, which is the socioeconomic um, yeah. um, conversation. I really would like to go there if you have a few minutes. Um, sure. You know, what what for you was like the big shift in going from like yeah I'm sure you you seem like you're very intelligent you're obviously well read I'm sure you've known these stats for a long time what was the moment where things switched for you where you said okay I I have to be like an advocate and an activist in in this realm now when it comes to you know socioeconomic issues it's the first day um, that I ever flew as a woman I've I've flown over two and a half million miles with American Airlines I've I've been at their top level for decades. Mm. And I got on the plane and there was stuff in my seat and, uh, and I picked it up and put my stuff down. And the guy said, that's my stuff. And I said, okay, but it's in my seat. And he said, lady, that is my seat. And I said, actually, it's not, it's my seat, 1D. Uh, and yes, I always get the free upgrades. Um, <laughs> of course. I, I said, but um, you know, I'll be glad to hold your stuff till you find your seat. And he said, lady, I, I don't know what I need to tell you. That is my seat. And I said, yeah, actually it's not. You know, at which point the, the guy behind me said, lady, would you take your effing argument elsewhere so I can get in the plane? And I was mm. stunned. 
And so finally, the flight attendant took our boarding passes. And, um, you know, it was aggravating to me because I can tell you what would have happened when I was a guy. When I was a guy, I would have said that. And immediately the guy would have looked at his boarding pass because he would have assumed I knew what I was talking about. Mm. He would have seen he was in the wrong seat and he would have said, oh, I'm sorry, but no, I have to get the flight attendant to do it. And she tells him that and he, he no apology, no nothing. And then, you know, Mr. Would you take your thing argument elsewhere is next to me in the other seat. Right. And I was just stunned. And Seriously. so my friend, Karen, who works for American, uh, came on the plane, gave the paperwork to the captain, waved goodbye. I get to Charlotte. She called me and she said, what happened? And I told her and she said, oh, Paula, welcome to the world of women. Mm. So it was my personal experience that taught me this. And then uh, as I began to study it, I began to truly deeply study it and realized how how deep the inequity is. I mean, we're we're a hundred years away from pay equity, let alone anything else. Really? You know, like it, I mean, 47% of first and second year law associates are women, only 15% make partner. Mothers with children at home are 44% less likely to be hired for a job, even though they are better multitaskers, take fewer unnecessary risks, and are incredibly capable in making the right kinds of decisions to grow the company. Mm. I mean, the, the statistics go on and on and on. Wow. What are your thoughts um, on like the corporate model as a whole in America? Like I've been really, I've been thinking about my, my thoughts lately have been, okay, like life is more than just, you know, working hard for someone else, especially a corporation, as they really suck up labor and pay you, uh, especially now, the wages are just so stagnant. We all know that. We know that companies like Amazon and, you know, Walmart, Apple, who I've worked for before, have just, you know, exploded in, in profit during COVID. You know, Jeff Bezos is flying to space. I think the average Amazon employee makes $30,000 a year. You know, it's and, and I live in New Jersey. You live on the East Coast. You know, that is like poverty wages. To, you can't even get a, a basic roof over your head. Um, and you know, the, I hear a lot of the same arguments. We'll work harder, find a better job, and they they, they just fall flat. Uh, <laughs> they just fall flatter and flatter for me. I mean, do you think? Like, I feel like like corporate America and the transnational corporate model is is just doing so much damage to all workers, especially you know workers who are women, minority workers, etc. What are some of your thoughts on that? You know, I don't necessarily, uh, you'll find a lot of uh, particularly radical feminists who want to blow up any kind of hierarchical systems. And mm. chapter 15 in my book is, mm. is ultimately about my experience of trying to be a part of an organization that did blow up those systems and did not have a CEO. Mm. And uh, quite frankly, it didn't work. Mm. And so I, I actually believe in... Um, uh, hierarchically based systems, I, they're not the problem. Okay. Uh, the problem is in who's at the top. Mm. So if you take a look at the, at the first phase of the coronavirus, you know, what, what do uh, Finland, yeah. Norway, Iceland, um, Germany, uh, New Zealand, and Taiwan have in common? They all did extremely well in the first phase of the coronavirus. Mm. What else do they have in common? They had a woman as a head of state. And what was it different about those women? Uh, first of all, um, they were they were open to uh, correction and collaboration and compromise. You know, and the the key element in all six of those women is they had great confidence coupled with great humility. 
You know, Henry Nouwen always used to say that the greatest leaders in history have always had equal parts confidence and humility. Mm. And the truth is you'll find a whole lot more women with those paradoxical strengths than you will men. Mm. So, you know, take a look at the first, at the three countries that did the worst in the first wave of the coronavirus, um, Brazil, the United States, and Great Britain, mm. and look at their leadership, mm. where there was uh, hubris, not only confidence, but not one ounce of humility. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> okay, so-, so I think really, yeah. if we had leaders uh, who were, people of incredible character. You know, one, one of my friends is Scott Case, who was one of the founders of Priceline. And he started another company, uh, Upside Travel. And uh, the, how they've treated their employees through COVID, and they're a travel company, they do business travel. And how they've treated their employees is remarkable. Uh, so it's not always gender specific. Uh, Scott, you know, they've had me in to speak up to their corporation uh, uh, several times, uh, their chief, People officers become a good friend. He's become a good friend. Um, mm. You know, uh, there are powerful white guys out there who who want to get it right. right. I do a lot of work with uh, the Biden administration. I had mm. the privilege of uh, being one of the speakers for the uh, inaugural prayer service, and um, his administration's getting it right. Mm. So you know, before I, I let you go, and again, I appreciate you coming on and making time. What are some of these, like, I guess I call them, I would call them ingredients, you know, like you said that um, you mentioned obviously intelligence, but also humility. What are some other ingredients that go into making a person who can be, you know, at the top of a company who is creating these um, more equitable systems and, and CEOs? Like if you had a list of like, here's some top five attributes, I, I would say, what, what would you say? Yeah. And I think I would rather roll that into answering that rolled into another question, which okay. is, um, what do women wish men would do differently? And I can tell you the, the first thing they wish is that um, that men would assume a woman knows what she's talking about and treating her accordingly. Hmm. I, I've never said those words in a conference that there hasn't been wild applause, if not a standing ovation. Hmm. Uh, th that's just huge for us. We're, we're tired of being ignored and treated as if we don't know what we know. Hmm. Uh, and then stop interrupting us because men interrupt women twice as often as they interrupt other men. Hmm. But I think there are some things that men need to learn. The first is deference. Hmm. Deference is not a respected male trait. Women learn deference as a birthright. Men see deference as weakness. And unless men can learn deference, we're not ever going to achieve any kind of equity. And so what does that look like? Uh, when it comes to uh, gender equity, it starts by being an ally, by, by saying, I'm, uh, I'll do anything for you. I want to make sure you succeed. I will be the, the strongest cheerleader you have. That's not deference. Mm. Deference is moving from being an ally to an apprentice. It's moving from saying, you tell me what I need to do mm. and teach me what I need to know mm. so that I can reach out. I, I think that's really the first thing. Uh, that needs to be done. I, I think that men need to learn the value of compromise uh, and of collaboration, and, and particularly of being open to correction instead of seeing that as, as losing 
Mm. Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand was incredibly capable at this. Every time she took a wrong turn, she'd say, oh, I made a mistake there. You know, at the same time, we're not hearing that in the United States. So, yeah. um, so and then I think the third thing men need yeah. to do is learn how to deeply, deeply listen. You know, I'm, I'm a pastoral counselor, and you could put all counselors out of business, if we would truly deeply listen. I'm a person-centered therapist, which means I don't assume I have any answers. Mm. Uh, I, I assume the answers are within my client. And my job as a therapist is to help them remove the obstacles that are stopping them from finding their own answers. And I can't do that if I don't deeply, deeply listen. And I can tell you with great confidence, I'm a far better therapist as a woman than I was as a man. Mm. As a man, I was too quick to tell you what you needed to do. So I, I think just yeah. those things would make a huge, huge difference. I agree. <laughs> I agree. My wife and I have talked about these things a lot in our marriage and now we're raising a child and, you know, getting ready to do other stuff. And it's, um, I've had to really put a lot of effort and work into like uh, those three things that you mentioned, uh, believing my wife more often, <laughs> mm -hmm. man, there's been times where I just feel so dumb afterwards. Like what, where did that, where did that even come from? That like quick dismissal. Right. And then, um, listening better and not offering like, Oh, here's how you fix it. Like all the time. And you know, I found that for me asking for permission is like, Hey, is this a, you want me to listen conversation? Or are you looking for, for, for my input here? Like what, what would you like has just done wonders for our communication well, as a couple. And, yeah. Most of the time, women don't want an answer. Women are verbal processors. They just yeah. want someone to listen to them while they find the answer. Yeah. And men, on the other hand, don't do well with their feelings. Yeah. Uh, so whenever they are distraught, they are fixers. And they ask their wives subconsciously to hold their feelings for them. Mm. And so they're always in fix-it mode because, heaven forbid, they should go into emotional feeling mode. Yeah, yeah. that's really good. Well, listen, um, Paula, I appreciate you making time and coming on. Like, like, like I said, I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes to, to your book. But where else hey. can, can people find you? Where can do you, do you have a podcast? Do you do any, any I, kind of public I work? I don't. I'm, I'm too lazy to do that hard work. <laughs> and I'm too <laughs> old. I'm older than dirt. So I still have a blog. So it's paulastonewilliams.com. Great. Well, I'll make sure I link that for sure. I'll, I'm also going to link your most uh, your most recent TED Talk as well. I think that my audience really benefit from it. And I appreciate the work you're doing you know, in I, these spaces. Um, yeah, I think that would be good. I think it'd be good to, uh, to link that. I think also to link the first one. I think it's probably better to watch the first one. Uh, and if you're your listeners, uh, if, if uh, watch the red sweater one first and the teal jacket second. Okay. I'll put them both in order. So it's just a click yeah. and a click. Nice and easy. Yeah. Uh, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been wonderful being with you, too.